And here we go. Another edition of Jamal About Sports on a Monday night, June 19th, 2017. Starting the show out with a little Do You Want to Hold Me by Bow Wow Wow. Their other uh, hit, in addition to I Want Candy. That one's probably lesser known. I think a better song. Anyway, big show to get to tonight. We've got golf. We've got baseball. We've got NBA. We start with the golf and the U.S. Open, which uh, ordinarily the toughest test in golf, uh, or is at least supposed to be, uh, to the point where oftentimes the winning score uh, is at or even above par. Um, I believe Tiger won the 2002 U.S. Open at Bethpage Black right here in New York, out on Long Island. I believe it either even or one over. Um, you know, usually the rough is impossible. The greens are, you know, like uh, roller rinks or ice rinks, if you will. The greens are so fast. Um, you know, the conditions are generally, you know, the USGA goes out of its way to make it an extremely tough test. And if you're a golf fan, you're conditioned to expect to watch players struggle. And if you're someone who plays golf, like me, uh, not well, you know, I'm okay, 14 handicap. Um, you know, you especially like watching the best players in the world struggle because it's extremely relatable. You know, you see a guy hit a ball in a rough and can barely advance the ball you know, 10, 15 yards, or sometimes they can't even get it out. That's relatable if you are, uh, you know, again, not a not a great golfer. Uh, or even if you are a great golfer for, for an amateur, you know, everybody's had, uh, had their blow-up holes from time to time. So in any event, that's kind of what you've come to expect with the, with the U.S. Open. And we got none of it. Yeah, Brooks Kepka winning at 16-under essentially making a mockery of this place, Aaron Hills in Wisconsin, which for as long as it was, I think nearly 8,000 yards, uh, and for a lot of fescue, none of it really seemed to come into play because it was well off the fairways. The fairways were extraordinarily large and wide at 50 to 60 yards in some instances. Uh, The greens didn't seem to be all that fast. It was a little windy early yesterday, but... It wasn't a huge factor, and um, it really was an an extremely, it was not a compelling event at all. And and listen, I'm I'm a bit of a golf junkie. I mean, I I watch, and this is not to disparage the women, but, you know, the numbers will tell you that the LPGA Tour, the ratings are not very good. I will watch women's golf. Um, So I watch golf quite a bit, and... Uh, I, I mean, I had it on yesterday. Can't tell you I was riveted. Certainly not all that interesting. Now, a lot has to do with who was at the top of the leaderboard. Um, you know, everyone wanted to see Ricky Fowler win his first major yesterday. He was close. Uh, he did not play well yet again in the final round of a major. Another top five finish. Okay, he's got like five top five finishes in his, I think, his last... I don't know. I think one year he finished in the top five of all four majors, and this is now his fifth. That was two years ago, I think, or maybe even three. But uh, And now he's got a top five finish. But, 
again, didn't win and was never really in contention yesterday. It's not like he lost coming down to the last hole. Kepka had this thing wrapped up pretty much with three holes to go. There was no drama whatsoever. Complete opposite of what we got at the, May, at the Masters. And while Brooks Kepka, Brooks Kepka certainly is obviously a very talented player, this is his second win on the, the, the PGA Tour. He's got one win overseas. Um, certainly not a compelling figure. You know, big, strong guy. Hits the ball a mile. Has has some Dustin Johnson to his game in that regard. Um, but, you know, uh, I mean, I've heard of him because, again, I'm a bit of a golf junkie. I can guarantee you more than 50% of the average golf fan never heard of Brooks Kepka. And, you know, the guys that you'd like to see at the top of the leaderboard, you know, Jason Day didn't make the cut. Dustin Johnson didn't make the cut. Rory McIlroy didn't make the cut. And Jordan Spieth was bit, was never in contention. In fact, he didn't play well at all. He had his best round yesterday at the 2-under 69. And so, you know, there was really none of the big names, none of these supposed the young Turks, all these guys that were supposed to have replaced Tiger Woods. And, you know, some of those guys have, have won, you know, they've all won a major, some of them multiple majors, right? Spieth and McElroy both have multiple majors on, under their belt. Um, but, you know, and then even Adam Scott wasn't in the mix. I mean, none of the real big names were in the mix. It was Brian Harmon, who had a nice win earlier this year, I believe, at the Wells Fargo in, I think it was North Carolina, when it looked like we were going to get a playoff between uh, Pat Perez and, and Dustin Johnson and uh, Harmon hold like a 30-foot putt on 18 to win. And it looked like we were going to get a three-way playoff. Um, you know, a you know, little short lefty guy. Kind of reminds you a little bit of Mike Weir. You know, again, guys had some mo- modest success on the tour. But, you know, 30 years old. Uh, certainly not a household name or a, com- or a, com- or a compel- compelling. Um, you know, Hideki Matsuyama got in and posted a nice number at the 12-under. You know, he's, he's, I think, won three times on the tour. It would have been a nice story, I guess, for the first... A Japanese-born player to, to win a major, um, but you know wasn't enough. He played well, but again, he was finished at least an hour before uh, Kepka was finished, and it was pretty evident that 12 under wasn't going to be the number. It was going to have to be lower, and it was. It was 16. And what that really does is it raises the question: Does golf have a problem? Because Listen, I was never a Tiger Woods fan. Uh, I think I've made that clear many times. Um, but, you know, what he did for the sport is undeniable as far as drawing in the average fan and, and, and increasing its popularity. I mean, my mother, who plays golf, but, I mean, she loved Tiger Woods. And anytime he was playing and or was in contention, my mom was watching. Uh, that would not have happened if it were not for Tiger Woods. Um, and she still watches... You know, occasionally, I'm pretty sure she and my dad probably had it on yesterday and, and watched uh, probably, you know, w- with one eye open. But, um, you know, so there's no denying Tiger's impact on the sport. I mean, all the way across, right, from the purses have been much, are much bigger now uh, to, again, bringing in the average fan. But, um, you know, if... <laughs> I think really, you know, other than people like me and, and my buddies who play and who are super into it, you know, 
none of these guys are going to step up. You know, Spieth. And look, Spieth is still 23 years old. I mean, so he's still extraordinarily young. He could become, you know, Tiger-ish. I mean, it it is, I have to admit, his run of dominance just just gets more and more underscored every year that passes. I mean, it's been, what, nine years since he last won a major? And we've had several guys, again, that were supposed to be the next him. McElroy, Spieth, even Adam Scott, I mean, Charles Howell III. I mean, there's been a bunch of guys that, that, that were supposed to be that guy. And, and the one closest so far looked like it was going to be McElroy, but he hasn't done anything in a while. And, you know, Spieth certainly still has a chance because he's only 23. <clears throat> but um, golf might have a little problem on its hands. Because the average fan is not that into it. I'm not. I, I'm going to see. You know, I'll, I'll take a look at the ratings. I don't think they were great. Uh, not a fan of the Fox coverage at all. Uh, Joe Buck, not a golf guy. Doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Uh, I find Paul Easinger irritating. I know he was a, a, a decent player on the tour. Uh, you know, speaks his mind. I'll give him that. But I, I just found him irritating. Uh, not a fan of his either. I don't like the production. Uh, didn't really like anything about it. Pretty much, I think, the whole weekend was a wash, quite frankly. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not, uh, you know, again, we've got two more majors left to go. The next will be the British, and then, oh, I'm sorry, the Open Championship. And uh, then we've got the PGA after that. And then we've got um, President's Cup in the fall, which is... Like the Ryder Cup, except it's not Europe, it's all the other countries outside of Europe against the United States. And that should be fun. And that's right here in New York at, uh, I believe, Liberty National. So if you're a New Yorker, a little bit of extra interest. Um, but again, I think that, you know, that's an event that really only, I think, diehard golf fans really care about. Uh, Ryder Cup certainly is a more prestigious event. I think even the average fan gets into Ryder Cup. Um, President's Cup, not, not as much, certainly. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, again, I don't care that there's not a dominant figure in the sport. I think it's kind of cool that anybody can win uh, a major. You know, the last seven majors has been won by a different guy, and it's all been their first time winning a major, right? So I think that's kind of cool. Other people, not so much. And clearly the average fan, not so much. All right, moving on. Major League Baseball, it is interesting, and I say it all the time, I probably, I know I sound like a broken record, I say it every week, but it is such a long season to make any proclamations in April, May, or even June is pretty idiotic, and I fell for it, and again, I, not to say that this is the death knell, but last week's show, Yankees were riding high, and then a week later, six losses in a row. Tied for first place with the Red Sox, who we also talked about last week. If you're a Red Sox fan, you had to feel good about the fact that you hadn't really gotten on a run yet. You kind of had the season had been, you know, sort of fits and starts, and now there they are, tied for first place with the Yankees here on uh, on June 19th. Um, you know, Yankees have had issues all over the place, but mostly pitching. I mean, there's, you know, I know they lost 4-3 yesterday, but they're still scoring runs. Aaron Judge continues to crush the ball. He's got 23 home runs. You know, Starling Castro somehow still hitting 320. Aaron Hicks 
Well, he's been uh, he's missed the last couple of games with an injury, but you know he's still hitting well over three hundred. Matt Holiday's been a really nice pickup. Actually, listened to an old show AG and I did last, uh, I guess, in the winter about that pickup. Both of us thought it was a shrewd move, and it has turned out to be exactly that. He's been good, 14 home runs. Um, so the offense has not really been the issue with the Yankees. It's the pitching. Uh, and, you know, Severino looked like he had turned the corner, and he still may have. He had a stinker the other night. CC uh, Sabathia had a stinker. Tanaka, who we talked about last week, uh, has been bad, and he was bad again. It was a weird line. He had 10 strikeouts in four innings, but he gave up five runs. Um, so I guess if you want to try to take a little silver lining there, you know, he had good enough stuff to strike out 10 guys. Now, again, this is the A's. They're the worst team in the American League West, one of the worst teams in the whole American League. Granted, it was in Oakland, but uh, getting swept by the A's, not great. And... Look, the AL East, again, I mean, it, it's almost every year you look up and it's a dogfight. I mean, again, tons of time left in the season, right? Tons. We've still got probably 11 games to go in June, and then that still gives you three full months of baseball left, July, August, September, right? There's still 90-something games left in the season. So, ton of time. But, you look at the NL, the, the, sorry, the AL East, and there are the Yankees at 38-29, and 29, and the Red Sox at 39-30. So, yes, technically the Yankees are ahead because they've got one less loss, but the Red Sox have one more win. So, just call it even, which is what they are. You know, the Yankees' winning, winning percentage is slightly higher at 567, and the Red Sox 565. But, um... So Sox nine over, Yankees nine over, Tampa Bay Rays somehow thirty seven and thirty five. Um, I think a uh, an undercovered story this year. Now they've got some good pitching with Chris Archer and um, uh, what's the guy's name? I'm trying to think of. You know what? I'm going to look it up right now. Um, they've got some decent pitching. Um, they, they you know what they do? They catch the ball. They've got excellent defense. So. Uh, they're starting pitching, probably led by Chris Archer. Uh, yeah, he's there. Yeah, he's got wins. ERA three seven five, not terrible. A lot of strikeouts already. Um, who else am I thinking of? Uh, I guess Matt Andrews. He's uh, he's been okay, not great. I mean, he's got a three fifty four ERA five and five. Chris Archer, Alex Cobb. 417 ERA and Jake Odorizzi. Three, so they're, they're starting step. They've got four guys, you know, low fours, high threes ERA, which, again, in the American League, not terrible. Got a great, very good closer in Alex Colomay. He's got 19 saves already. And, um, you know, it's got a nice whip of 1.05, which is what you, you know, that's walks and hits per nine innings. You want that to number to be around, you know, if it's below one, you're thrilled. But the low ones, 1.05 is very good. Um... You know, means guys aren't really, you know, he's not, doesn't have a lot of base runners, right? Which is what you want from your closer. I mean, you want that from every pitcher, but I think particularly your closer, you don't want those those sort of, you know, edge of your seat uh, save games. So, you know, they've got, they've got pretty good pitching. And then, <laughs> as emblematic of what's going on in Major League Baseball with uh, home runs uh, to look to be back to the steroid era, 
as far as uh, frequency. Someone named Logan Morrison. Now, I mean, I know who Logan Morrison is, but clearly not a household name. It's 21 home runs. Logan Morrison. Logan Morrison has 21 home runs. Now, let's take a look and see what his career high in home runs is, or low-mo, if you will. Uh, So he's 29 years old. He's been in the big leagues. I think he played with Seattle, maybe, I want to say. He started out his career with Miami. His first full year was 2011. He had 462 at-bats. He had four, uh, he, oh, okay. He had 23 home runs and 462 at-bats. That's, that's actually pretty good. Next year, he had 11 home runs and 296 at-bats. Next year, he had six home runs and only 200. So I guess he was hurt those years with Miami, unless he was maybe a platoon player. I don't quite remember. Then he had 11 home runs... And 336 at-bats for Seattle and 14. 17 and 457 at-bats in 15. And last year with Tampa Bay, 353 at-bats at 14 home runs. So, I mean, look, not it's not like the guy's never hit some home runs, but for him to have 21 and 229 at-bats this year is ridiculous. It's a, it's a nutty pace. Um, he's got a ton of strikeouts, 66, but he's got a ton of walks, 38. So, you know, he's only hitting 245. Down base percentage is 353. Slugging 572. It adds up to a 925 OPS. You know, you're thrilled. Um, And he's playing first base for Tampa Bay. Uh, He's had a great year for them. Um, They've got maybe one, maybe the best fielding uh, center fielder in Kevin Kiermeyer. He's right up there with um, Millar from the. Blue Jays, um, Corey Dickerson is hitting home runs for them. Um, Steven Souza Jr., also a very good outfielder. He's got 13 home runs. I mean, they've got a nice little squad. Tampa Bay is a nice little squad. And, you know, look, the Blue Jays started out awful, right? I think they were like 2-15 and 15 to start the year. Something really bad. And now they are... Only two games under 500 and five and a half games out of first. So, and the Orioles, who got off to a good start, have been wretched lately, won their last two, but prior to that, I think they lost eight or nine in a row. They're at 534 and 34. So, I mean, look, the AL East, it's amazing. My point is, it's amazing what a, what, what a difference a week makes. Everybody was all over the Yankees, and rightfully so. Look, they were playing great. But I think I did caution that it's a long season. And while the pitching is really what's let the Yankees down, you know, my, my thing last week was, you know, I don't think Aaron Hicks is hitting 330 for the full season. Same thing with Aaron, jo- Aaron Judge. Same thing with Starlin Castro. There's nothing in their, in their, their past uh, seasons would indicate that that's the kind of hitters they are. Now, I'm not saying guys don't get better. But, you know, 330 is a big difference than, than 280 even, right? So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see if I'm right. But, um, listen, I'm not saying the Yankees are done, not by any stretch. Just it's it, things look a lot different one week later. Which brings us over to the AL Central and the Indians, who we talked about also last week, you know, had not really been uh, playing up to expectations well. Uh, they've won five in a row. 
They're 36 and 31, five over, seven and three in their last ten. Twins have regressed to the mean, which we thought they would. I mean, it's amazing. Their run differential is minus 44, and sometimes that can be misleading, right? Because you might get blown out in a game or two. Meanwhile, they also had a game where they won 20 to seven last week, though. <laughs> but um, they are now only a game over 534 and 33. You know, to quote the late, great Danny Green, the Twins are who we thought they were. Uh, and then the rest of that division, I mean, the Royals sort of just stumbling along at 33 and 35. Can't really get to seem, seem to get anything going, although they are 7-3 and three in their last 10. Uh, the Tigers have been a disappointment at 32 and 36. And, uh, you know, the White Sox, I don't think much was expected from them anyway. You know, they traded away their best pitcher, Chris Sale. They traded away, you know, one of their better hitters in Adam Eaton in the offseason. So, you know, they kind of are in rebuild mode anyway. So they're 31 and 37. And they'll be a very interesting player come the trade deadline because they've got some, some, some pieces that teams would want. Now, I think David Robertson is vastly overrated as a closer, um, a former Yankee. But uh, with teams like the Nationals in dire need of a closer, uh, someone will probably end up overpaying for him. Maybe it'll be Kelvin Herrera from uh, the Royals. But one of those guys is probably going get, to get moved, if not both. Uh, Melky Cabrera, who seems like his name is another former Yankee, by the way. Uh, it seems like his name gets mentioned in trade rumors every year. You know, he's a good, solid lefty bat. Not great, but pretty good. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, Todd, Todd Frazier may get traded. I don't think they'd get rid of Jose Abreu, their, their stud first baseman. Um, and Abisel Garcia has finally started to hit for them the way they thought he would when they got him a couple of years ago from the Tigers. But, uh, you know, the White Sox are in rebuild mode. Uh, Moving on to the National League. And um, actually, before we get to that, I really want to go back to this home run thing. So, I mean, home runs are up uh, at an all-time high. You've got guys like Logan Morrison with 21 home runs. You have um, Aaron Judge is 23. I mean, it's... Listen, I don't think anybody would have been surprised if you said Aaron Judge was going to hit 30 home runs this year if he got 500 at-bats. But, I mean, he's on pace for, like, 60. Uh, and, yes, I get it. I mean, he's a monster. I understand that. But, and again, we haven't seen these kinds of numbers since sort of the, the height of the steroid era. I'm not saying that we're in another steroid era, but something's going on. And a big part of it is the fact that... Um, Pitchers now don't pitch the contact. They want to just throw the ball by everybody. And so you're seeing a propensity of, of strikeouts. Nobody cares about strikeouts from an offensive standpoint anymore. Guys are trying to hit the ball in the air more uh, than ever before. Uh, the shifts have played a large part into that, right? Because uh, ground balls, if you're a lefty pull hitter, um, you know, ground balls between first and second used to be base hits. Now they're they're outs because teams play that triangle over there, right? Guys like Ryan Howard, you know, Jay Bruce for the Mets, they shift on him a lot. Curtis Granderson gets shifted on a lot. You know, basically any lefty pull hitter, Brian McCann, Teixeira when he used to hit lefty for the for the for the Yankees. I mean, it, you know, that's what that's what happens now. So, you know, the the days of the Keith Hernandez's are over, basically. The 320 hitter with 18 home runs but still drove in 95, who never struck out 100 times, who walked close to 100 times. I mean, those those days are over. 
You have guys striking. I mean, Logan Morrissey has 66 strikeouts already. I mean, he's on pace for whatever, 120, and that's not even a big deal anymore. Nobody blinks at 100 strikeouts anymore. There's this new theory now where there are three uh, quantifiable outcomes, a walk, a strikeout, or a home run. And again, you've got pitchers now, you know, except for the occasional kind of crafty lefty, right? The Greg Matt, there's no more Greg Maddox. Now, now I'm not saying that Greg Maddox, there are a lot of him. I mean, the guy's a Hall of Fame pitcher. But, I mean, look at the Mets. Looks like everybody on the Mets staff wants to try to throw the ball a million miles an hour by people. Syndergaard certainly wants to. Now, DeGrom has done a better job not trying to do that. He got off to a really good start striking out a lot of guys, and then he got out of his game. And then he had back-to-back starts where he gave up seven or eight runs and couldn't get out of his own way. And some of that were some mechanical issues, but he's rebounded quite nicely his last game. He had a complete game against the Cubs and uh, eight, eight innings, one run against uh, Washington yesterday. But, I mean, the sport of baseball is changing and or has changed it's not the same sport I grew up watching. It's not. I mean, speed is completely uh, undervalued now, or not valued, and not undervalued. It's not even valued. Speed is meaningless to most teams. Um, you know, the stolen base has basically gone the way of the dinosaur. You basically just have guys, you know. I mean, I just named, what, six guys, seven guys in Tampa Bay that all have double-digit home runs already, and we're not even at the All-Star break yet? You know, the Yankees are mashing them with the Mets. Mets, I think, have the second-most home runs in the National League, behind the Nationals. I mean, it's, it's, it's not an aesthetically pleasing game anymore. And I... I listen, I... I still watch it because, you know, I'm of a certain age. I'm from a different era. It's what I know. Um, and, I, you know, I know we've been moving in this direction for a while. It seemed like a couple of years ago, though, the tide was starting to turn and home runs, there were less of them. So it was someone who could hit home runs, there was a higher premium paid on that type of player because they were becoming less. So, But you saw teams were trying to get a little bit more athletic. A little faster, better defense. And the Cubs are an example of that. Um, the Mets have gone the complete opposite direction. I mean, I've talked about it a million times. They're a lumbering beer league softball team with zero athleticism. Their most athletic player can't ever stay healthy in Cespedes. And their next athletic player, most athletic player, is Jose Reyes, who's 34 years old and stinks. He's hitting 190. So... And, and that hitting 190 with, you know, a lot of at-bats is not a, sh- a small sample size. But the game has changed. I mean, there's, there's, there's really, you know, okay, home runs, I guess, you know, people, they're, they're exciting, no question. But other than home runs, there's not a lot that goes on in games. You see guys striking out all the time and home runs. That's what you get. Base running is non-existent. I mean, the Mets are the, the worst defending team by far. But, I mean, I watched other teams against the Mets. They, 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 no, nobody knows how to run the bases anymore. Or, very few teams run the bases properly or well anymore. No one can bunt. I mean, forget about it. That's almost a lost art now, too. 
I mean, even pitchers. The Mets are, again, since they're the worst fundamental team in the league, they're Exhibit A. Other than Jacob DeGrom, that's not have a pitcher can get a bunt down. Uh, but I see it on other teams, too. And I know, listen, I understand that there was a difference. There was a distinct difference between National League branded baseball and American League branded baseball because of the DH. But now that, you know, interleague play is so pervasive, and we literally have like an interleague game every day, which is also a joke, by the way, that needs to go. I've said it a million times. Nobody cares about the Pirates and the Royals in August. Okay? Stupid. Keep it the way it was when they first started with the built-in geographic rivalries. So the East plays the East, etc. I know. And then you say, oh, it's, it's not fair. Because, you know what? Then get rid of it altogether. The novelty's worn off. I, I, but I can't tell you how little I care about Mets Yankees. Couldn't care less anymore. No interest. It's just another game. It's been 20 years in our league play. But my point is, so there used to be a very distinct difference in style of play between the American League and the National League. Now there is none. Even though, because, you know, again, National League teams go on the road, they play with the DH. So if you're a National League team and you have X amount of interleague games, you're going to play, what, 30 games, 20 games with the DH anyway? The sport's changed. It's, it's completely, it's almost unrecognizable. It's, it's becoming like softball. And speaking of my Mets, real, really quickly here, we're not going to spend a lot of time on them because they, 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 they don't warrant a lot of airtime. Um, you know, they can moan and groan all they want about their, their injuries. And, and, and listen, it, it, it never ends. I mean, Juan Lagares finally started to play well for them, was hitting, his, could always field, but was starting to swing the bat well and was starting to become a viable option to play a lot, particularly when Cespedes was still, uh, you know, easing his way back in the lineup and or any time a lefty was going to go up against the Mets. Starting to play really well. Of course, he gets hurt trying to make a dive and catch breaks his thumb, which he'd already, which the same thumb he hurt, I think, two years ago. Same thing. Harvey now on the DL. He's got a shoulder issue. I mean, it's, it's looking more and more like that guy's never going to have uh, a career. Certainly not the career we all envisioned for for him. Um, is Drupal Cabrera back on the DL? Surprise, surprise. With his thumb yet again hurting him. But I'm sure that had nothing to do with the fact <coughs> that they didn't put him on the DL a month ago when he first hurt the thumb, right? And they let him play five games with it until he had to go on the DL. I mean, please. Again, that's the thing. Like you know, the Harvey thing—that's not the Mets' fault. The Lagares thing—that's a freak thing. That's not their fault. But the Cabrera thing is the Mets' fault, and I, I, I'm tired of them pretending like the, there's no cause and effect the way they handle injuries. It's a joke. And so now, of course, the pendulum's swinging in the other direction. So uh, Cespedes—they are being extremely cautious with, um, probably overly so. So in the game on Saturday, he looked great, right? He beat out two infield hits. He scored on not that deep a fly ball to right field, coming hard down the line from third base on a sack fly. He mashed the home run. He was four for four. Terry Collins sits him yesterday because that was the plan now. He, was, he, he plays three games in a row, and then he has to get a rest. Now, the season's probably likely over anyway. 
Um, but if you're going to cling to the idea that the season is not over, which the Mets are doing, and rightfully so, I mean, publicly, they should be saying that. I mean, they are six games under 500, not good by any stretch, and they've been a bad team now for the better part of two months. But not time quite yet to fold up the tents. But so if you're going to cling to the notion that you're not, you know, giving up the fight, how do you not play him yesterday in a game where you got to try to avoid the sweep at the hands of the Nationals? Now, it worked out. DeGrom pitched a great game, hit a home run. Mets won 5-1. But a curious decision, it would appear. And again, I know I'm the one who said I'm all for erring on the side of caution. I understand that. But again, sometimes you got to go by like what your eyes tell you. And if you watch Cespedes play on Saturday, he looked great. He wasn't limping around. He didn't have any hitch in his giddy-up. Again, they got away with it yesterday. They won the game anyway. And now they go out and play four against the Dodgers three against the Giants. Uh, Giants, by the way, are awful. Uh, I think have actually a worse record than the Padres. Let's go to the standings here real quickly. Yeah, Giants somehow worse than the Padres. 26-45. and 45. 19 and a half games out of first place. But the Giants, that, that stadium's always been a house of horrors for the Mets. Uh, Giants always a pain in the Mets neck, so... Uh, and the Dodgers are the hottest team in baseball. They won nine, uh, one, uh, they're nine and one in the last ten games. Although so are the Diamondbacks. I mean that division right now, the the, the NL West. You have the Rockies, twenty over, forty six and twenty six. Diamondbacks and and Dodgers are both eighteen over at forty four and twenty six. Run differential for the Dodgers plus ninety eight. They got oh yeah, they got this guy Clay Bellinger. Who's got nine, 20, 19 home runs and 20 singles on the year? 19 home runs and 20 singles. And he didn't even start out the year with the team. He was in the minor leagues. So he's got 19 home runs. Let's see here. Let's look him up. I mean, this is what I'm saying. I mean, this is insane what we're seeing from a home run standpoint. Cody, sorry, did I say Clay Bellinger? It's Cody Bellinger. He has 19 home runs in 188 at-bats in 50 games. That's 38 home runs in 100 games. So he's got 49 hits. 19 of them are home runs. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, it's nuts what's going on with the home runs this year. And Kershaw's going tonight for the Dodgers, you know. Still best regular season pitcher probably in baseball. Um, it's going to be a tall order. I mean, it, it, listen, the, the, the Mets, we talked about it last week. They needed to take two out of three from the Cubs and three out of four from the Nationals to, to have any kind of a feeling that they could, they could make a run. And they, asked, they, they, they did take two out of three from the Cubs, who are still spinning their wheels and are still only a 500 team. But uh, they lost three out of four to the Nationals. And, and, and the games, the losses were, were not really close. You know, they, they were not 4-3, 5-4, you know, 7-3, 7-2. The Mets, I mean, the Nationals are clearly a better team, despite the fact that they have a lousy bullpen. By the way, this is all you need to know. 
Nationals bullpen ERA against everyone but the Mets. Well, overall, it's in the fives. But against the Mets, it's 2.55. Against everybody else, it's in the sevens. So that's all you need to know. And then plus Daniel Murphy, literally 29 games now in a row, he's gotten on base against the Mets. They had a chance to break the streak yesterday, but he hit a, a double with one out in the uh, in the ninth inning yesterday when they were down 5-1. Obviously, didn't hurt him. But, so, I mean, Murphy has absolutely destroyed the Mets since he's gotten to the Nationals. They could, The Mets couldn't get Ryan Zimmerman out when he wasn't any good. And now that he's having this ridiculous resurgent season, they really can't ever get him out. Um, you know, Trey Turner... In the loss at four stolen bases for them yesterday. You know, the, the, the young athletic shortstop that the Mets desperately need that they refuse to promote in Ahmed Rosario. Because Sandy Alderson said, oh, we have good players here. Really? Yeah, Jose Reyes is a good player at this point in his career, hitting 190. And, 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 and has been hot to get to 190, by the way. It was in the 180s last week when you made that idiotic comment, Sandy Alderson. I mean, the Mets don't have good players. I'm sorry. Now, Jay Bruce had a great year. He's got 18 home runs. Cespedes, as we know, is great when he can play. Curtis Granish is not a good player anymore. I'm sorry. I know everyone loves him. He's a great guy, and I say it every single show. <laughs> Again, I know it's broken record time. But he's not a good player. Michael Conforto looks like a good player. He hit a slump. It's going to happen. He had a nice game yesterday. Maybe I'll get him jump-started again. And even though he hasn't been hitting, he's still been drawing walks and getting on base. Now, I think he's still miscast as a leadoff hitter, but as Nipsey Russell once said in Wildcats, he's the best guys we got! I mean, that's that's our best... That's the Mets' best option as a leadoff hitter right now. Can't put Reyes there. And there's no one else. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. Jamal about sports, coming back from the break with the little Locked Out of Heaven by Bruno Mars. You know, I figured it was time maybe to play something that wasn't from the 80s for once on this show, so uh, there you go. I know that song's already like five years old, by the way, somehow, <laughs> but uh, maybe even older, but uh, yeah, in any event. Uh, and we wrap the show up with a little NBA talk, so uh, the draft uh, swiftly approaching, I believe... It's Thursday. Let me see. I got to check this out again. Again, I should probably already have done my research and known when the draft was. Um, perhaps maybe it is tomorrow. Let's see. Let's take a look. When is the draft? Uh, okay, NBA draft. I'm on ESPN.com. I'm looking to see... Thursday, June 22nd. I was correct. Okay. Uh, at the Barclays, right here in beautiful downtown Brooklyn. Walking distance 
from the Jamal About Sports studios. So the big news is the uh, the trade between uh, the Celtics and the Sixers. Uh, the Sixers moving up, uh, swapping picks. The third pick for the first pick plus a first-round pick in next year's draft goes to the Celtics. And I believe a first-round pick in 2019 as well. Uh, for, by all accounts, to draft Markel Fultz, uh, the all-everything guard from Washington, whose team won nine games last year. Nine games. Won nine games. This is the guy who's the greatest player in the history of the world. Markel Fultz. Can't miss. His team won nine games. Now listen, I get it. The team stunk. Okay. Nine games? I mean, I'm sorry. The Sixers, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. Okay, I know. Trust the process. Trust the process. I'm so happy that Joel Embiid finally played 31 games for you last year. He played none the year before and none the year before that. And yeah, he looks like a really good player when he plays, which is not often. Nerlens Noel was going to be the next great thing. He was so bad and then hurt that they traded him to Dallas. And Ben Simmons, who they drafted last year in the top three, didn't play one minute. Now, they, they're assembling some talented players on that team. I'm not saying they, they aren't. They are. But, I mean, this is like a seven-year rebuild at this point. I mean, at some point, <laughs> you got to, I mean, you got it's got to translate into wins at some point. Their average record, I think, in the last five years is 19 and 63. I mean, it's ridiculous. All indications are Lonzo Ball and his jackass father are going to get drafted uh, number two by the Lakers. Although, you know, there are some some rumblings that perhaps the Magic Man is, uh, is not enamored with Lonzo. Now, that could just be posturing, smokescreen. It would seem to make sense, right? He went to UCLA. He's a pass-first point guard, great Court vision. He's got good size for the position at 6'5. Sound like somebody we know? You know, has an unorthodox shot, but a somewhat effective shot. I mean, Magic's jumper got much better much later in his career, but I mean, he was such a unique player because of his size and his court vision. And I mean, he could score in a number of different ways. You know, he certainly was never known as a great jump shooter by any stretch. He got, as I say, he got better at it later in his career. But so it would seem to me a perfect fit. I mean, unless, again, you don't want to take on the baggage of the father who can't keep his mouth shut for more than five seconds and says something stupid every five seconds on top of that. So, but the father aside, you know, UCLA kid, local kid, Lakers, point guard, seems like they've already soured on D'Angelo Russell who, by the way, a lot of, a lot of Markel Fultz and D'Angelo Russell, right? Big point guard, you know, great college player. I mean, the, these one-and-done guys, it's such a crapshoot. You know, and, and, and Mike, my buddy Mike, who's a big Celtics fan, who, who I, I listen, the guy knows his stuff, but please, don't be texting me about, you know, on his, his AAU team, he did X, Y. You know, I, 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 I don't care. I love you, bro, but that, I mean, come on. 
He's going up against grown men. These guys are going to be going up against grown men. They played 30 games in college, maybe 40, 38, depending on how they do in the tournament. Uh, Markel Fultz, they, his team didn't make the tournament with nine wins. So they played 30 games. There's an 82-game schedule in the NBA. 19-year-old kids. So it seems like Ball should go to to the uh, Lakers, but they're already sort of resetting. You know, I think pretty much everybody's uh, can be had on that team except for Brandon Ingram, the kid from Duke, Julius Randle. You know, top ten pick out of Kentucky just a couple years ago. Again, I just said D'Angelo Russell. I mean, there's a bunch of guys on that team. I think you can have any of them. Like Magic is ready to, to, to reload. And then I guess the Celtics are going to take, take Josh Jackson from Kansas, who, you know, super athletic at 6'8", 200 pounds, but can't shoot, which is a problem anytime, but particularly in today's NBA, where everything is space to floor, Dribble, penetrate, kick, and shoot. So it's interesting because the Celtics are in a bit of a tricky spot. Now, my buddy Mike tells me that he thinks Markel Fultz could play two guard. He seems to be in the minority of that opinion. He was a point guard in college. Um, but when your best player is a 5'9 point guard, a great one, and Isaiah Thomas, and a great scorer, maybe a point guard doesn't make sense. And, you know, you could try to do the, the Earl the Pearl and, and Walt Frazier thing and pair them and hope it works out. Um, but, you know, Isaiah Thomas needs the ball in his hands. That's the bottom line. I mean, I understand he led the NBA in fourth quarter scoring this year. He has to have the ball in his hands. He's not really a facilitator. He gets his own shot. He gets it in the lane. And, you know, look, he, he has some, some decent assist numbers, but, you know, he's a shoot-first point guard. He's a scoring point guard. And it served them well, obviously. They got to the conference finals. Um, I know they had, I think they had their moral victory parade two weeks ago because uh, they won one game against uh, the Cavaliers. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's only going to take them so far. And it's interesting. I mean,. Talk about a sport that's changed. We talked about baseball. I mean, basketball Basketball is really unrecognizable to when I was growing up. I mean, the, the, the old wisdom in basketball was if you didn't have a center, you didn't have a shot. I mean, that's why when the Knicks got the, you know, won the first lottery ever for the right to draft Patrick Ewing, I mean, it was, it was not even a debate. And as recently as, well, it's not that recent anymore, but 10 years ago, Greg Oden was the first pick, and Kevin Durant was the second pick. And nobody was killing Portland for drafting Greg Oden because he was a seven-footer who looked like he was going to be a dominant big man. I mean, it's, it's eerie how much the parallels between Portland, you know, taking Sam Bowie, uh, who never amounted to much because of injury. I mean, he, he ended up to grinding out a decent NBA career as a backup, but, you know, they could have had Michael Jordan. But they already had Clyde Drexler, who was a very good player and played the same position as Jordan. And Sam Bowie was considered to be a franchise center. 
but he had foot problems, and he kept breaking his foot every two seconds. Greg Oden, same thing. And so they could have had Kevin Durant and ended up with Greg Oden instead. It's, it's amazing how that happened to them. And Bill Walton, too, by the way. I mean, Bill Walton was a very good player. They won a championship with him. But then he's another one whose career was cut short because of injury. And again, we a lot of foot injuries and knee injuries, but, you know, leg injuries mostly. Same thing happened to Odin. It's just weird. One team has had, you know, three potential franchise centers. They did win the one championship with Walton, but didn't work out with uh, Bowie for sure and certainly didn't work out with Greg Odin either. But now, my point is, 10 years later, that wouldn't even be a debate anymore. Nobody would even, Greg Oden might not even be a top 10 pick in today's NBA. Because you got to have a stretch four. Because everyone needs a stretch four, which is a power forward, who can shoot threes. Right? I mean, the days of Charles Oakley are over, too. Like I talked about that last show or two shows ago. You know, the Truck Robinson, Mo Lucas, Charles Oakley... Horace Grant. I mean, those days, those guys, those guys, again, those guys, those are, you know, uh, Brian Grant on those good Portland teams. You know, rugged, Buck Williams, rugged, rebounding power forwards. Those, those guys don't exist anymore. If they do, again, they're glue guys. They're bench players. But even those guys have to be able to shoot the ball from outside. And when I say from outside, I mean from three. For the most part. I mean, that's, the NBA is a three-point shooting league now. Don't tell the Knicks that. They don't know it. But the rest of the NBA has figured that out. I mean, the, the whole league knows that you need a good point guard. You need to be able to shoot the three well. The Knicks, because of the dopey GM manager, whatever his name, president, big chief triangle, Phil Jacks, right? Because of him and his dopey triangle... Puts no value on having a good point guard and doesn't think uh, shooting three-pointers is that all that Im- important. Okay. That's good. It, it, it's, it's tantamount to basically going back to the dead ball era in baseball. It's so pathologically stupid. So the Knicks, I'm sure, will end up with some terrible pick here because even though it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a draft filled with potential, you know, Super athletic point guards like the Dennis Smith Jr. kid from NC State, Malik Monk from Kentucky, who you know played two guard there, but Cal Perry swears could play point in the pros. But at the very least, he's a super athletic player. Uh, they're going to probably draft this French kid who's six five. Who's you know listen, he could turn out to be a good player. I don't know any. I'm not going to pretend I know anything about him. Frank Nicolina. You know, he's 6'5". You know, look, they, they, they've had some success, to be fair, with drafting European players in Porzingis and uh, Hernan Gomez. But it seems silly that you wouldn't take a guy who's super athletic because you don't value athletic point guards because of your triangle offense. But so the NBA has completely changed. I mean, you look at the teams... That made it deeper on in the playoffs, right? Celtics, really good point guard. Cavs, really good point guard. Warriors, really good point guard. Oklahoma City, really good point guard. Houston, really good point guard. You know, the only team that made it a deep run that didn't was San Antonio. But guess what? They got really good play from their point guards. 
You know, before he got hurt, Tony Parker had a couple of throwback games. And then Patty Mills stepped in and played really well for them. And they also happen to have Kawhi Leonard, who's one of the best players in the league. Granted, he's a small forward, but he's a great player. Which brings us to now Paul George, who's quickly becoming one of my least like likable players in the NBA. Uh, I guess it's announced that uh, he is uh, will not be uh, re-signing with the Pacers. Essentially, he's got one more year left on his deal. He can opt out after uh, the end of the 18 season. And so now there's all sorts of speculation that maybe the Lakers will try to trade for him now because that seems to be his preferred destination. Or perhaps uh, the Cavaliers will try to jump in uh, to the fray because, you know, Bron Bron doesn't think that they, uh, as currently constituted, can beat the Warriors. And he's probably right about that, as we just witnessed. Um, but, I mean, look, Paul, Paul, jo- Paul George is a nice player. He was a nice story. You know, he had that horrific leg injury a few years ago. And he's come back to be a very good player. Paul George is also 1-for-15 or one for 20, I think it is, all time uh, so far on, on last five-second potential game-winning uh, shot attempts. Not exactly Mr. Clutch. Um, and it's I guess it's ironic because he does that dopey Gatorade commercial where you know he, he takes a game-winning shot and he just turns around and grabs his Gatorade and takes a big swig and starts walking off the court because he knows it's going in. Uh, in any event, Paul George is a nice player. He's not a franchise player. You don't build your franchise around Paul George. Paul George and LeBron James, probably a pretty good combination. But if you're Cleveland, who are you giving up to get him? Kyrie Irving? I wouldn't make that trade. I mean, Kyrie Irving has some faults, but I think he's a more impactful player. I think he has more of an impact on a game than Paul George does. And, you know, I understand LeBron kind of can play every position, but, I mean, Paul George kind of plays the same position LeBron does, too. Um, so it'll be interesting, you know, to talk maybe the Celtics. Will get, I, again, I, I, used to, I don't think Paul George is that big of a difference maker. I think he's, he's a classic. If Paul George is your third best player, you're, you're, you're probably, you could be championship caliber. If he's your second best player... You might be, you know, you probably conference finals caliber, maybe make the finals but not win the finals caliber. I mean, again, he's a really good player. But, you know, he's not Kawhi Leonard. He's not James Harden. He's not Russell Westbrook. I mean, he's not Dwayne Wade in his prime. Certainly not LeBron. Certainly not Kevin Durant. You know, a really good player. Very good. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets moved, uh, you know, before the draft or maybe during the draft. Um, And again, I wish I could get excited for the Knicks. I can't. I just can't. I can't. You know, there's talk they may try to get another first-round pick. We'll see. You know, it's a fairly deep draft. Look, if you need to tell me the Knicks somehow get one of Portland's three first-round picks, either preferably the 15th or the 20th. 
Uh, and they took Malik Monk at eight and Justin Jackson from North Carolina at 15. I, I, I could actually get kind of excited. But I don't think that's going to happen. All right, that's it for tonight's show. Thanks for listening. Peace out.